Hi, my name's Shane Delia, and this is Uncommon. Uncommon is a production by Neural, a full-service digital agency. If you want to grow with a premium agency and have the ability to work with Jordan directly, then learn more at neural.com slash media and request a callback. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E dot com slash media. My name's Jordan Michaelides and I'm the host of Uncommon, a show that digs deep with unique individuals. If you like the episode, leave us a written review on your podcast app as it helps us to continue what we do on a weekly basis. Show notes are below in your app. Otherwise, for all previous guests, you can find them at neural.com slash podcast. That's com slash podcast. To watch the full video, just search Uncommon Show on YouTube to find our channel. Or if you want to keep up to date on social media, you can find us at uncommon underscore show on Instagram. With that being said, let's get into the episode. My guest this week is Shane Dahlia, founder of Maha Restaurant, Maha East, Biggie Smalls Kebabs, Middle Ground, which just came out in December. He's a aficionado of Mercedes-Benz and a prominent son of the West as well. I feel like I may have probably, I've probably forgotten the restaurant in there. Maha Bar as well. <laughs> Doesn't open yet. Opens next week. Uh, Maha Bar, which, uh, yeah, is replacing Biggie Smalls. Look, I've, I've got so many notes here on things to open with. We were chatting before about Sydenham. Uh, but there's two things I want to ask you about. Do you still note take in your moleskin diary? Yeah, 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 I do. It's in the car. Okay. Um, yeah, heaps. I mean, I'm, no one can decipher it. I mean, the, the, the scribble in there is terrible. It's kind of like half English, Maltese, and kind of looks like Egyptian. But Have you ever <laughs> found someone sort of like peering through it? Like sort of just... Uh, no, but I've got them all, the old ones in the office, just in the cabinet sort of, you know, over the years. Because I go through probably one every eight or nine months. Okay. Um, and yeah, they're all sitting there. And I, I should probably actually go through them and see all the things that I should have done and didn't get around to doing. Uh-huh. The other thing I was thinking about as well is uh, watches. Mm. I hear you're a bit of a, a oh, watch no. geek. No, not really. I, I, I like watches. Um, I don't have a ton. I've probably got three or four. Um, but I don't really know what's cool and what's not cool. I just know what I like. And I think that's with any collection. I think if you start worrying about what you should be collecting or should like, you're fooling yourself. Yeah. You should just be drawn to something. What do but, you like? In regards to watches? Yeah. Oh, like, I think you should have a variety. You know, I think you should have stuff that, you know, you can wear every day, stuff that when you're really trying to be a baller, uh, stuff that's really just, I suppose, a bit understated but still got a bit of finesse when you're, you know, wearing a nice suit or you don't need to, you know, make a statement. Um, something that you can throw around every day as well. I think if you've got a little bit of everything, then you're okay. And then you can be obsessive and start going crazy. But um, I just turned 40 couple of weeks ago okay about that. happy birthday thanks and I, and I um a little bird told me that a few of my friends have got together and all put in some money to buy me a, a, a nice watch so um i'm actually having the celebration for that tomorrow and i'm supposed to act surprised but i think i know what i'm getting <laughs> How, well that's an interesting thing because when you when you're let's say at an earlier stage of your career um like uh, I, I don't know, just coming from a, a Wog family as well, the the value of a gift is what is 
uh, prominent. But as you get older over time and as you see more success in life, it's actually the maybe a bit more nostalgia or um, heart that goes into a gift that you start looking for. Yeah. Like I noticed that with my dad. Yeah. He really doesn't care anymore for for gifts that are opulent, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, the opulent stuff's nice because it shows that people are willing to put their hand in, you, in their pocket and, um, you know, really dig deep for you. They, go, they, they must like you if they're willing to throw in 20 grand. You know what I mean? Between <laughs> everyone. You know what I mean? You go, wow. And it's, but it's also sometimes easy to just, like if you've got money, it's easy to put your hand in your pocket and go, here, no worries. There's no thought, there's no emotion. Whereas, you know, like for my 40th, one of my uncles, who, you know, he and I have always been really close, uh, bought me a gift, which took a lot of time and a lot of love. And he really had to know me and, you know, he had to go and find it and, it, you know, it would have taken him forever. Um, yeah, for him, it was probably like spending 10 grand, you know, it's all relevant. You know, he'd still mm. spend a little bit of money to get it. Um, but when I got it, I just knew how much time he would have spent to get it. And I really loved it. You know, it's, I cherish it. Um, Can you so, say yeah. what the gift oh, was? Oh, it was just a, it was just a model car. I've got a couple, I like cars as well. I've got a couple of cars and yeah. I've got an old um, 72 HQ Monaro, which is all original, like original everything, M- motor and gearbox and Jesus. beautiful car. And he found me, like there's these really beautiful, like the scale models that they make. And he found me my car in my colors, you know, and there's like, they're really hard to get. Like, I mean, it sounds real geeky and, and I have got no other model cars, but just because I knew that he'd spent so much time, because once I walked past one of these model shops and for, I saw a couple of the other colors, and I went, oh, wow, if they've got one that's mine, I'll just get it, you know, it's kind of cool. And, you know, building a new house, and I thought that'd be nice in the man cave. And, um, and, uh, well, he would have spent so much time yeah. on that. Yeah, it's a lot of time. research. Yeah, a lot of time. Yeah. And you, you almost have to beg for these things, because they like they hand make them. And Anyway, so yeah, it was cool. Um, speaking of family, uh, you've spoken in the past about cooking with your grandparents in the kitchen when you were, I think, you, you said in an interview, it might have been on news.com.au, about how you were 13, your mum would leave like a list of things for you to do, whether it's peeling potatoes or whatever it may be. And there was sort of always a prominence of men in the kitchen, yeah. particularly your, your grandpa. Yeah. Um, what, is, what is your earliest memory of the kitchen? Uh, I don't know if there's a single memory. It's more of a more of an emotion, I think, rather than a memory of a unique time or experience. I remember always being in the kitchen. You know, I remember always the conversations were held in the kitchen. You know, my grandparents, like the kitchen's always was always at the centre of the house. Um, and I think in any good home, the kitchen's where people congregate. Yeah. Um, so I remember with both sets of grandparents. You know, if I go to my grandparents who lived in Preston. You know, you'd meet in the kitchen and you'd sit around that little kitchen table. There was a dining table, then there was like this little kitchen table. Yeah. You'd play cards with your grandfather, your grandmother, you'd make your tea, you'd be eating little biscuits that they made and all that kind of stuff. So you're always in there. So it was always that hub of happiness, I suppose. And then when I'd go to my grandparents who lived in Sunshine, which was on the same day, we'd do Sunday, we'd do lunch at one and dinner at the other. Um, and then it would be the kitchen again. You know, it'd be like you'd come in, Nanda would be sitting at the kitchen table, You'd give him a kiss, say hello. My grandmother would be in the kitchen doing her thing. The other uncles and aunties would be around, and you'd fight for a seat to sort of sit next to your grandfather. Um, but you know, he'd steal some nuts, have something to eat. Dinner would be served, and it was always just that that place of happiness. I think that mm. drew me to cooking. You uh, another interesting thing you spoke about is how uh, the co- cooking is sort of uh, 
for you personally, I guess if you see people happy from cooking, that you get a sense of happiness from it, and that must have been instilled at a young age. Like you mentioned before about always wanting to sit next to your grandpa. I had the same exact thing, except for me, it was all about the story because he was always a media guy. He was a printer. He printed the Greek newspaper, and so to be like, it would it feel like you're at a campfire, mm. and you know you're telling these ancient tales, and it's like, oh, mm. and so. Through through watching that, I'd want to get more and more as a uh, as a storyteller better at telling stories at the table. Mm. So I'm I, I guess I'm curious as to you th- you sort of see whether that fed into that, like the desire to want to be liked in that environment. Yeah, I think so. I think people are drawn. Everybody, you know, like yourself, yeah. you know, people are drawn to things that make them happy. And if you can be drawn to that thing that makes you happy, and then it becomes your career, well, then life's a blessing. Mm. Um, but I think about my grand, my Nandu Nandu, my dad's dad. Um, he had a like you know he had one son and seven daughters. Yeah. My dad was the oldest, and and so we were the only people that held the family name because all my other all my aunties lost their name when they got married. Yeah. So my brother and my, and my my brother and I were the only Dalias, and my grandfather held that in high esteem. So he used to make a big deal of it, and he used to piss everybody else <laughs> off. You know, like you see, you see, you'd, you'd arrive at the house and he'd be like, "Oh, my Delia boy!" He said, "You've got thirty-six other cousins, and they're all looking at you like you asshole." Um, but you know, I think you were the chosen ones. Well, yeah, and, and, and I was I wasn't the eldest. I mean, I ha- I've got one cousin who's older than me, so I can just imagine how it would have felt for him because it was kind of like that where I was placed as the, the almost like you know the. The successor of the family yeah. um, name, you know. And I, I, so. can, I can imagine that, that's an important thing in, I guess you could say, Mediterranean families. Yeah, it's it's very very important. Yeah, it was important you know, that there was somebody to carry on the name and carry on the you know the history and the legacy of our family. And it's been really important that those values were instilled from an early age and that we had a really good connection with our with our home, mm. even though I was born here. You know, you can still say home. You know, as in Malta. And, um, and now, later on in life, I've established a really good connection w- with with Malta. You know, I work with do some work with the government in Malta. I I sit on a, uh, on, a on a council called the CMLA, which is a, yeah. a council for Maltese living abroad, and we represent the diaspora of Malta, uh, Maltese in Australia mm. um, and globally. We've got councillors from all over the globe. So, and it's if I didn't have that connection with my family, which was all forged in the kitchen, um, I wouldn't have that opportunity now to work with the government and really sort of understand who we are as a people but um no it's been a it's been, <laughs> it's been an interesting journey <laughs> <laughs> well you you mentioned before about uh ted teddy yeah. uh your dad uh came out here on a boat at 17 i wonder if he came out on the chandras line I'm not sure because i think that's where uh, that's i'm pretty sure that's the one that my grandfather came out on there used to be a line that'd go from like portsmouth or something like that to Gibraltar, Malta, Cyprus, which is where he was picked from. All, picked everyone up and took yeah, them. pretty much all the all the colonies along the you know Sri Lanka and all that, Malaysia, Singapore, and then stop in Australia. Um, if you think of the a lesson that you've learnt from your parents, is there something that that sticks out in particular? Tons of lessons. Um, a lesson from my dad, I suppose, is that you don't need everything to be happy. And my dad's just happy with what what he has, and he's always been very selfless. You know, I don't, I don't know anybody as selfless as my dad. You know, he's um, he hasn't got a huge network of friends. You know, he's really kept it tight. Um, worked 
in a job for you know thirty something, six something years. Um, what did he do? He worked at Dunlop. Okay. Um, he was working first on the line and production line, and worked his way up to you know middle management and senior management, and was always the wog. You know, like he talk, I think he talks about that a bit. How you know my dad's inc- incredibly intelligent. You know, is you know put himself you know through night school and did some university degrees and all that kind of stuff. Did it himself. Mm. Um, but was always looked over. You know, if you think about it in the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s, you know, like that, he was always, he's quite dark. My dad's darker than I am and he's got a Maltese accent and um, was always, he always says that he was overlooked for a lot of positions. Yeah. Um, and I think that he just found his, found his um, happiness at home. So he taught me that it doesn't matter what's happening outside, if home's good, you can get through. It doesn't matter how much money or friends or fame or whatever's happening professionally. If if the heart's and the core's good, things are good. So I've really tried to focus on that throughout my career because a lot of shit's happened around 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 the peripheral. Yeah, you had a zinger quote before before we were chatting. I'm just trying to remember what uh, it was. Yeah, um, uh, you can have everything. You just can't have it all at once. <laughs> exactly. I feel like that uh, condenses what you said in such a brilliant way. Yeah, because that. I mean, that was. Like very little means, you know. Like I remember on my, I, hear, I see my friends now buying their kids cars for their birthday, on their 18th. I mean, my dad bought me a set of rims for my car that I built, yeah. you know, um, and that was like amazing because I knew ha- that he'd saved it from the m- allocation that my mum would give him every week. So my my dad would bring home the money and give it to my mum, and she'd manage yeah. the funds, and my mum would cut out a bit and say to my dad, "That's for you to do what you want to do with." Yeah. And out of that little pittance. Yeah. He saved the money and went and bought me this present. So, you know, a lot out of the household funds, out of his slither. That, that's a commonality amongst a lot of um, immigrant families from that era. Like, uh, you know, if you compare, let, let's say my mum's family on the Australian side, they, if he, my grandfather had that money, he'd probably just go to the pub. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, like, my grandfather would always save that money yeah. and reinvest it. Um, in some way or do something with it that helped yeah. that little community of people that he had. Yeah, I don't, you, know, it's, it, you knew that when Dad bought you something, it was coming from his pocket, mm. um, which was always something special, whether it was a, on the weekend you'd go to the footy and it was a, if it was a pie or if it was something major like that. Um, if it was a family holiday, you knew it was coming from sort of the, the family savings. But if Dad yeah. put his hand in his pocket, you knew that it was... And he didn't get much every week, you know, so... <laughs> How did he choose the Bulldogs? Was it just proximity? Oh yeah, when he came to Australia, yeah. he was working at the Dunlop factory across the road from the bull, from, in, yeah, from the from okay. the Western Oval. Um, and like I said, he came very young, and you know his mates that he met at work were his new mates. They were all Bulldog supporters. It was this, it was a, you know it was a territorial thing back then. Now you live in Essendon, and you can go for Frio. I don't know what the hell that's about. <laughs> um, you, know, you, live in, you live in Footscray, and you're going for Collingwood. It's ridiculous. It's fucking weird. Yeah, but you know, no, it's a it's similar thing to my grandpa. Moved to St Kilda just off Fitzroy Street in '51. St Kilda down the road. Yeah. That's your team. That's your team. Yeah, yeah. that's your patch. And then he moved to Moorabbin, and then they moved to Moorabbin. It's yeah. like, well. Yeah, it's, it's fate. A, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's what makes it. That's I mean, you look at I suppose football in Europe and everything else. You know, you support your patch, you support your team, the area you live in. If you don't, I mean, it can be bloody life-threatening. But I mean, here it's. It, it, I think it represents the Australian culture yeah. at the moment. 100%. Anything goes. <laughs> <laughs> I, f- I found it interesting. You you believe, or I think I don't know if you said this or your mum said this, but you had ADD as a kid and your move into 
you know, working as apprentice, I think you started at Eden on the park yep. at 16, sort of ease that agitation? Uh, no, I had, I, I, I have, still have ADD. I don't think you, you don't grow out of ADD. Um, um, I didn't get diagnosed until I was later in my schooling. I mean, there was no diagnosis. You know, I'm not, don't sound like an old man, but there was no diagnosis back then. Yeah. Um, and I was a, I was a child who was amongst a, a test group almost of kids that were, were being, you know, tested for this new thing, which was ADD. Wow. And I think they tested like a huge sample of children, you know, a thousand, and it went down to 150, and then it whittled down to like 100. And I was in that 100. And then they said, okay, well, because they were testing experimental stuff. It was like, you know, Ritalin, Dexamphetamine, and giving, 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 you know, amphetamines to kids was, you know, still now it's, you know, it should be done with caution. Yeah. But I saw a night and day, you know, reaction from being because I'm, I'm not stupid, you know, and I'm not. Um, it's just I just can't focus. Yeah. Well, I couldn't focus. Um, but for, and I was always frustrated, and that frustration led to acting out, and led to violent behaviour, and led disruptive behaviour, and then led to getting in trouble and leaving school and suspended and expelled and all these things, you know. So. Um, and it wasn't out of wanting to be a rebel, it was just out of not being able to be out of frustration. Yeah. You know? So um, from, it was almost like, went through a process, and I felt sorry for my mum. Because my mum had to, you know, when your mum always loves you the most, and you go through this whole process of school with teachers just telling you how bad your son is, and she knows that you're not, and she sees you crying, and knows that you're wanting to do better, but you're being, you know, bullied at school by, teachers and students and everything. So for her, the whole school journey was this saying something's not right with my son. Mm. And then to finally get into an era where she felt like she had some, um, you know, that, 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 that she was finally proved that she was right, you know, that, that she was, that there was something and she was, she was really happy. But then I saw a, like a D to A shift, you know, like Jesus. D, C, C, occasional B and then suddenly A, 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 A. So it was just, mate, because I'd come home from school and I, it was like the Rain Man. You know, I'd run to my room and I could just start, wanted to, because finally I could get this shit done. Uh -huh. You know, and I was like knocking it out, put my paper down, just couldn't wait to get it back. You know, it was unbelievable. Um, but it was a weird transition because during that time, I'd already, before I'd started receiving treatment, I'd already decided I wanted to be a chef. Mm. And I'd already started that process of working on the weekends, hunting for apprenticeships, working for free. I mean, I wrote a handwritten letter um, to every five-star hotel in the state, everyone, and got denied by everyone. Now, what year was this? This would have been early 90s. So, um, well, yeah, so I've been 94. Okay, so... Maybe. When did the hat hatting or hatted system... Oh, uh, it was already in play then. It was. Yeah. Yeah. It was already in play then. Because yeah. you worked, I think this is where you met George at the uh, restaurant at the Softail. But one thing I've noticed um, amongst a lot of celebrity chefs from that era is how many worked at hotels. Well, that's where all the that's where the best restaurants were. Mm. See, hospitality, hospitality. It's well, it's it was changed fuckload um, from then to where it was in the late 90s, early 1000s, to where it is now, is, it, it, it's, it's polar opposites. Yeah. You know, all the best restaurants were in hotels. They had the infrastructure, they had the prestige, 
They had um, the structure, the, the staffing structure. They had the money. They had the clientele. Yeah. Um, they had the international clientele as well. That were, they're probably used to that level of dining. Um, and they had the opportunity to, to, to get visas and get staff from abroad who had been exposed to that level of cuisine you know, and service. So it was the who's who of the zoo. Um, and then obviously then that spills out to restaurants and then some of these hotel chefs leave and try to do it on their own and then you start seeing the birth of you know, brilliant chefs around town that did their thing. Yeah, so you, you sort of had, it's like that initial boom in like a, you know, we see this in tech sectors, like there's this flurry or group of people in the space and then it gets to a point where they need to go do their own thing and there's not really the opportunity to do it elsewhere so they go and create their own opportunity. Yeah, yes, and yes, and then there was a shift in hotels as well. Then we, yeah. what we saw in the probably early thousands in the hotel sector, we're seeing now in the restaurant sector in regards to all this pay and fair work stuff. Right. So there was a huge like review or reform within hotels. Remember at the Sofitel as well in during that sort of 2001, 2002, where there was this huge reconciliation. Um, which, you know, it's a whole nother, whole nother <laughs> discussion. Yeah. Um, which was, you know, nobody needed, wanted, you know, or, and it destroyed that hotel sector where suddenly if we got okay, well, we have to, if we have to pay this and do this, these restaurants have to close. Yeah. And they close. Or closed. this is the price. Not even this is the price. It's not even this is the price. Yeah, it's just fundamentally it's just you couldn't the, operate. Yeah, so it just closed. And you look at them all. Radio closed, restaurant closed. Um, the one at the Hyatt, which I always forget what it was called, closed. Um, they all closed. There's not many that have Some, survived. Yeah, they all closed. All they all closed. And if they stay open, it was now they're just hotel restaurants that service their customers and do some breakfast. There's no premium hotel restaurants in Victoria. Mm. I can't think of any, unless you talk about boutique hotels like at the Lake House. Yeah. But that's a different business. I'm talking about multinationals. Yeah. You know, Hire Tiltons, Sofitel. The only one that I can really think of is the Sofitel's restaurant, but I can't even think of what the name is. Now in there, yeah, yeah it's Cafe La, but it's yeah. not. No one's going there. Yeah. You know, I mean, like it's it's you know you're not going there if you're just a punter in Melbourne. You're going there if you're staying in the hotel. But, or... but maybe that's the maybe that's the evolution back as well. Maybe restaurant, uh, maybe hotels realise that with the changes that are happening in restaurants now, all of a sudden they have the the capital available to make these pitches or these deals that could bring celebrity chefs or or chefs back into the fold in hotels. Who knows? I mean, I, I had some of the best times of my life working at the Sofitel and, and hotels in general. I worked in hotels from day one till I opened Maha. My whole career was hotels. That's right. Um, and um, I loved it. It was an unbelievable environment, um, great learnings. Lots of, lots of um, stuff we probably can't talk lots about. Of lots of fun. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Lots of fun. Um, I know you, from there you you moved to Eleanor's at Shadow Yearing. Um, I, I think because uh, from a very young age you were winning a lot of awards. Maybe just going back to that. Now that you've you've fixed your ADD in a way, you've got this mentality where you're just smashing things and you you constantly focus on improvement because that's something that you've spoken about. Yeah. In prior interviews, but in 2003, you were promoted to exec chef, which made you the, the youngest chef at the time. And I know from prior interviews, you said that you were way over your head mm. in that role. Yeah, definitely. Um, how do you think you landed that role? What do you think they saw in you to give it to you? Oh, I'm not, I'm not going to blow wind up my butt. I mean, there was a few things. I mean, the necessity, uh, they, they, they saw... Um, 
that I had potential. They knew that they could get me for a better price. <laughs> I mean, I'm not stupid. I mean, I run, a, run businesses as well. I mean, um, the ADD thing that you mentioned, the in, the, I never fully resolved that. And it came back and bit me in the butt later in my career as well. Um, where I had to, because you know, after because when I finished school, high school, uh, when I left high school and I went to start working, because it was still so, you know, so structured and they had su such you know um, uh, enforcement around how they could deal you this amphetamine. Um, as soon as I left school, I was no longer you know eligible to get it. So I went from great, 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 great to then in an adult environment where I'm working and take my treatment away, and it, it was really hard like really hard. And the only thing that kept me back online is the strict, stingent, stringent hierarchy of the kitchen, which had really firm walls, you know, like, which doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. So, you know, I knew that I couldn't move left or right because I was going to get my legs chopped off there and my head chopped off there, you know, <laughs> or the chef was on you. So, you know, that kept, and that saved me through the sort of my whole training period. Mm. You know, people talk about how hard it was and you can't treat people like that. I don't care. I mean, that saved me. Mm. And it saved a lot of people, I think. I mean, I, I speak to a lot of these chefs now who are performing really well and are captains of industry. They've been through that fire, you know, and, they're, and they're, they've, they're, they've, that's why they are where they are. They've, they've, inv they've invested in themselves. They've put in extra hours. They haven't been paid for it. But look what that investment's paid off now. Mm. You know, they've invested in themselves, they've spent the time, they've sacrificed, and now that's why they can have it all. It's couldn't have it then. Yeah. Can have it later. But um, at Shadow, at Shadow Earring, uh, I, I left, I was, it was like 2002 or three, I think, there at Shadow Earring. Um, I, was, I left Sofitel because it all started to fall down. They were going to close the restaurant and all that kind of stuff. And I went over with the with the head chef of the restaurant at the time then um, to the Siebel um, okay. to to work a little bit there. And I worked there for twelve months. And that was I, I mean I thought I'd worked hard before. That was the hardest twelve months of my entire life. Jesus, you know uh, we would get to work at six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning, and we would leave at like one in the morning. And I mean you'd go you'd be like you'd be at breaking point. Like, and you'd do like six days, you'd go home, you'd have a shower, it, the, the water would hurt you. Like it would feel like needles were coming out of this. It would just, your body was so, you'd get up in the morning, your shoes were still warm from the night before. Like it was just like, you know, like you'd, you'd come, you'd, you'd park, you know, we used to park then at Spencer Street, there was no, all that development wasn't there. And you'd walk up Flinders, uh, I walk up Queen um, Burke Street, and there was a chemist that was a 24 hour chemist. And we used to take it in turns who was going to go buy the, the codrils the suit with the pseudoephedrine to oh push us through the, the day. So it was a really bad, bad, and you were being constantly, you know, hassled by a chef. So I, at that time I was broken and I needed to either, I, I don't know, I was, I was in a good space. And this opportunity came out at Eden the Park in the Yarra Valley and I thought, ah, oh, this is a beautiful place. It's got a lot of prestige and it could be the change of pace that I need just to sort of get my head back together. And my mate was running it at the time. And he kind of said, I really need a great chef de cuisine to help me, can you come in as my second? And I said, yeah, fuck it, let's just do it. And I resigned and went there. And then after a while, you know, he, he was the top and I was, I was underneath him and um, he went through some personal issues. And, uh, you know, I, I've, I've probably never said sorry to him because I, I, I'm, always, I I'm a lion. You know, I, you, put, you, just, you put something in front of me, I'm going for it. Yeah. And I saw there was an opportunity to go and I went and 
um, I, I ended up he ended up leaving. I took that spot, you know, and I just just gave it everything I had. Yeah, but that is the industry as well. Yeah, it's it's quite cutthroat. Well, it's it's any industry you you can you can be a sheep. Yeah, or you can, well, be, you a can lion. be a lion. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not going to be the sheep. Yeah. <laughs> um, you met Maha through who's your wife through your sister uh, around this time. I think you, you've mentioned in prior interviews about how this sort of shifted uh, your focus in life. I know that um, her name is plastered everywhere across <laughs> all your brands. Um, what has she taught you about life? Uh, Maha's great because, I mean, we came from very similar backgrounds. I mean, even our ethnicity. I mean, I'm Maltese. Both, both my parents are Maltese. Her family are Lebanese. Um, if you know anything about Maltese history, we descended from the Phoenicians, who were the original Lebanese. Um, there's a lot of similarities in our language. She's Maronite Catholic, which, you know, there's a lot of similarities between her upbringing and cultural upbringing and mine. And, and our families have the same sort of outlook, you know. Um, and she keeps me really grounded, you know, very supportive. She's not one of these wives who needs all the best of everything and you know don't get me wrong she likes good stuff too and when we get a chance to to, to um you know spoil ourselves, we do mm. but it's not a pressure i don't have to worry that my wife's going and spending tens of thousands of dollars on things she can't afford mm. um, but she keeps me really grounded and when things are turning to shit like they do often um, she's always that person to just be you know we can go back to how we lived we lived like that we can do that again what, what, do, what do you think she does well that you don't do well? Like, as an example, I'm quite disagreeable, whereas Lauren is very agreeable. So if I'm sending an email, as an example, sometimes I can come across as a bit of a dick <laughs> and I'll get Lauren to check it. Yeah. <laughs> is there something like that that you guys have? Uh, I generally think I do everything better than mine. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, what, what, um, I, I, oh, she does a lot of things better than me. Not, cooking's not one of them, but um, <laughs> um, I, I think that Maha is, um, what she does better than me, she, she adds some calm. You know, like um, she'll really, you know, no, no, no. She, probably the opposite. I, I can, I, I'm a bit of a pussy sometimes. You know, I'll, right. if, if, if someone's done something wrong by me, um, I can be really angry about it. But then I'll reflect on it and I'll think about, okay, well, maybe I should just give them another chance or maybe I should. And she'll be like, no, no, no. She's like the fucking rock. <laughs> like She's like, no, no chance. There's no chance. I'm like, what do you mean? Recently, I've, 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 worked, I've, I've, I've found out that there's a staff member in our, in our team who's been doing the wrong thing by us. And um, I mean, on a small level, but still been doing the wrong thing by us. And it's one of our pillars, you know, it's you know, we've got trust, respect and honesty. And this probably breaks down all those pillars. Mm. And I've thought, okay, well, maybe we can just work through this, just crucial staff member, you know, and I, Maha's like, Are you fool, you fooling yourself? You know, um, she's telling me what I already know and probably what I believe in, but she just re, you know, reaffirms that. Yeah, Lauren does this really well as well. I think it's just judge, judgment of character. Mm. She's a very good judge of character. I don't know what it is. I feel like women are better than guys at yeah, this, for like sure. That. Like, I've, I've had mates or people that I liked or whatever, and she's like, I'm not sure about this person. And it was like, I didn't work it out for six months, 12 months, two years sometimes. And she's like, I fucking told you. Yeah, yeah. No, she can do that. She's very good at that. She, and we've been with a lot of my friends. She'll be like, 
<clears throat> yeah, no, I don't like that person. Yeah, that that is that is a thing that women are far better at yeah. ju- judgments <laughs> of character. That's an interesting one. Um, I, I want to jump to your the beginnings of the restaurant, which is Maha, mm-hmm. uh, two thousand five. I think well, 2005. You made your first appearance on Ready Steady Cook. So I see this as like you know, no, yeah, yeah, on IMDb it's got you 2005. No, it's wrong. Really? We didn't open the restaurant till 2008. When was your first appearance on Ready Steady Cook? It would have been 2009. Really? Yeah. So it wasn't until you actually had the restaurant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fucking weird. I wonder who fills that out on IMDb. I would have. I would have. I would have made my first television appearance. At, on on um, on the, the food lovers guide with Mavo Mara on like two thousand and five or two thousand and six. Mm-hmm. Um, so I shouldn't be trusting IMDb because it's got here nine a, nine a.m. with David and Kim. Yeah, that would have been around two thousand and nine eight two thousand eight. Okay, so it's got nothing pre that. So Ready City Cook. I wonder how that works. They must like have someone that puts in the credits. I must have fucked that up. Yeah, I don't know. I've, I've never <laughs> Googled myself or IMDB'd myself before to see what, <laughs> what but, I've done. But what I find interesting is you, you'd you already had this idea and funnily enough, George had had an, a similar idea. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess I was curious, how long had you decided or how long ago had you decided that the executive chef game was great and it was good to run a kitchen but the way forward was to actually own your own brand? Um, it wasn't something from the beginning. Um, Maha and I met, we were still, I was still at Shadow Yearing. I was coming to the end of my time there. I was getting bored, Yeah. really bored. Um, I was only 27. Wow. Um, and we were just about to get married and I thought to myself, I don't know if I want this life anymore. 27, I'd been doing it for 11 years. I thought, I don't know if I want this anymore. It pays me fuck all. I've, back then, I thought I'd achieved everything I set out to achieve. The pinnacle, yeah. You know, um, about to get married, I was excited, new life. Don't know if I want this for my wife, you know, and my kids moving forward, me not being home and all this kind of stuff. And that I was still young enough to start something new. And I thought, oh, I might start a new trade. I might, you know, I've always, I've always thought I'd be in a trade. Especially then, I thought now I wouldn't. Now I could do something else. <laughs> but then I thought I just, you know, maybe I could do some. I was, I was always interested in in carpentry. I thought I could be a police officer. You know, my grandfather was a sergeant of the police force back home. Um, and Maha and I discussed it. We talked about it. I was offered a couple of jobs overseas, as like you know, in Singapore and and Vietnam as exec chefs and of, of hotels, and which I was considering. And I was like, Maha was real willing to follow it, but even though she didn't really want to do it. And then, you know, I was sort of just, George and I were mates and, you know, we did our apprenticeship together and all that. And he just opened the press club, I think 2007 or six, seven, maybe six. <laughs> um, that would have been seven. And it, so, we, and it, it was flying and he was, you know, king of the world. And, and you know, I, I came down to Melbourne and I was talking to him about it. And, you know, he was invited to the wedding and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, mate, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I said, I'm over this kind of stuff. And he was like, Come on, man, we've been through the fire together, you know, like, mm. we, we've, you guys, you can leave. I said, I don't know, man, I just feel fucking over this, you know, I'm disheartened and haven't got, and he's like, and, and he's like, yeah, you know, you ever thought about doing something on your own? I'm like, yeah, I said, I've, Maha and I have kind of talked about it. If we did do something that maybe we opened just a little 
restaurant. And by then, then I wasn't cooking Middle Eastern food. I was cooking French food. I had my whole career. Mm. And I said, oh, maybe it's a little restaurant and this and that. And anyway, long story short, we kind of had this idea. They wanted to expand. George came to my wedding and we had a big wog wedding and it was lebo drums and people going crazy. And then Maha and I went on our honeymoon, which was over, which was actually, a, I got a, I did the full wog thing and I'd asked to, been asked to be a guest chef on an ocean liner, which went through the, you know, Abu Dhabi or Dubai and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and I used that as my honeymoon. So they flew us into, they flew us into Dubai oh my business God. class. You know, we were 27 years old, you know, Fuck we were kids. We drove, we flew us in, we were rock stars. We jumped on this ocean liner, it took us all the way around the Dead Sea and up to, up to Morocco. So that was our honeymoon. And I just connected to the, to, to the Middle East with, with Maha. I hadn't traveled through there before. Um, and I just fell in love with it. It felt like home to me. Like when I get off the plane and I set foot in Malta, even though I'm born here and I'm Australian, mm. I get off the plane there and, and I just, I'm, over, I'm overcome with this sense of home. Mm. Um, and I've been fortunate enough throughout my career to travel a lot with Spice Journey. And I feel that every time I come into a city that has Moorish or Middle Eastern roots, and I don't know why, I mean, you can't fake that. And I just felt that here and I loved it. And I had, the food was brilliant. And by the time we came back, George and I met again. And he'd just been through this whole experience of this big Lebo Wog Maltese wedding. And we sat down and he goes, oh, what do you think you're gonna do? I said, I think I might open a little meze bar. And he was like, oh, I was gonna tell you, you should do it. Open a you know, Middle Eastern restaurant after that wedding. And um, then he goes, oh, look, why don't we do it together? I'm like, oh. He goes, I've got these partners. And I'm like, fuck, I don't know your partners, man. You know what I mean? Like, I know you, I don't know them. Um, he said, no, no, they're great, they're great. And we basically met and had a lunch at the press club. Mm-hmm. And we left there with a deal that we were going to open a restaurant. Um, so that's how the first restaurant started. Yeah. And then there was uh, St. Cats. I remember uh, I remember the launch of that. I remember doing a few rock star shifts there. Yeah. I, lo- I love that place. Yeah, so did I. That place was fucking the... the, um, the you guys, what did you create? You created a... Uh, the oven. Oh, the pizza oven, that big wood oven? Oh, man. Or the grill there on the back, that big wood the, fire grill. The, I've never, to this day, this has constantly disappointed me, never had, uh, like, proper pide like that. It was that. nice out there. It was yeah. so good. I really liked the... I mean, I, I look back at that, even that moment, and shadow yearing time, I wish I could do that again now. Yeah. Like, because, I mean, I know so much more now, and I'm such a better cook and now than I was then and I've got better people and all that. We could do that now and make that pide experience that you've had so much better. Yeah. So much better. Um, and I look back at Shadow Earring and think, fuck, I had all these resources there that I didn't even know existed. Yeah. You know, you've got acreage and you've got a farmer and you've got, you know, all this produce and you could have really done some brilliant stuff. But I was a kid, mate. I was like 22. I stayed there from when I was 22 or 23 to 26 or 7. Uh, that, uh, you know, it was a l- great learning experience for me. I learned a lot about brand and business and budget and people, but I didn't really learn much about cooking. Yeah. You know, so I probably, where most of my other friends that I did my cooking with pissed off overseas and learned bucket loads of cooking, but didn't invest any time in that crucial part about network. You know, network's the most important thing. I built a network in that time, mm. which then has pushed me to where I am now. Um, whereas they learned amazingly how to cook. So all I do now is I just employ better fucking cooks than me. <laughs> because that, there are better cooks than me, and I've got better cooks than me in my own team. Yeah. But what I can bring 
they can't get anymore. I have. Well, well, this is what I was wondering. Like, you know, you spoke about in the interview that the thing that you learned from George was not uh, around creative and cooking, but it was about being a restaurateur. Yeah. And and I guess, um, do you feel like that was one of the things you really learned? Is it's it's finding the right people and putting them in the right places. That's is yeah. that what changed for you? Yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, I know that George is getting a lot of backlash at the moment, and his world's turning to shit. And I, I feel really bad for him. You know, because um, it's it's he doesn't deserve it. No. Um, a lot of former staff feel that way too. Yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. But um, he he was always very good at. He was good with people, and identifying who's great in what role, and really empowering them to do what they had to do. Um, I haven't always been so great at that. Um, I think it comes with maturity as well, and it comes with self-esteem. You know, I think when your self-esteem is good and you're happy within yourself, you don't feel like you have to. Con- well, I'm talking for myself. You don't have to control everything. Like when my self-esteem's not great and I'm not so happy, I'm very reluctant to let other people help me. I feel like, oh, I have to do this. It's, I have to make myself better. I have to fix this kind of thing. When you feel good about yourself and things are great and you're relaxed and you've got good people around you, you're kind of happy to push things back and just kind of let things happen, I think. Mm. Yeah, you become more of a maestro. Yeah. yeah. And I think George was always kind of good at that in those, in those early years. Yeah. Um, and he was good at that even before then. I think even at, at, we were at the same le- year level as apprentices. Um, and even at that level, he was very good at asserting himself. Uh-huh. So, what do you wish you could tell him today? Ah, uh, I mean, we we didn't speak for a few years. Um, you know, people get in each other's ears. You know, and we were. I think you always have to go back to what you had in the core, and in the core, we were really good friends. Mm. Um, you know, we're still friends now. We don't speak as often as we could, and I, I just think that I just wish, and I think he. I mean, I, I don't know. I haven't spoke to him. I just hope that in his next, when, when he rises again, and he will rise again, um, that he has better people around him. You know, that he has people around him that actually are willing to invest what he's invested, and I just don't just mean about money, mm. um, and that are in it for the right reasons. Effort. Yeah, effort, yeah. love, determination, willing to sacrifice. Um, and, and, you know, he's always had a goal of just being a great cook and creating great experiences. I think somewhere along that line, and I've been guilty of it too, um, we, we, we start to fall victim to the seven deadly sins, you know? Mm. Um, and then they start to just, it, it starts to blur the lines and you start to lose focus on what you actually makes you happy. Yeah. And it's not the money and it's not the endorsements and it's not the popularity and all the other shit. That's all great. But that's where Maha keeps me good because yeah. we get like all that stuff. Sometimes it's just you're drawn to the light, and, <laughs> but she's kind of pulls you back and go, "Okay, okay, we can. That's nice, and we can have that, but fucking sit down." But, but you know? this goes back to what you mentioned before about that that staff member and how important it is to have the right people. You know, being an executive in a or a restaurateur is probably one of the hardest executive positions in the business world. I think the highest pressure position because. You know, let's just look at Australia. All your, all the costs across the board have gone up far more than most other industries. Yeah. It's, it's quite, when people actually look at the hospitality industry, it's incredibly hard these days. Especially when you consider that most of the people in, like myself and George, we're, we're cooks, you know, like we're chefs. Yeah, yeah. You know, we haven't been through, done a Harvard business yeah, degree. Yeah, you've not done MBAs you and know, all that. We're, we're, we're cooks. Yeah. Um, 
and that's not like we should be saying, you know, poor me and give us a cut us some slack. Um, but we we evolve into these roles, and some of us are more naturally, uh, uh, I suppose, gifted or, or have have these um, strengths where they can move into management and understand business, and some don't, and and they just are always that chef that's out of his depth. Mm. Um, I, I feel that I've always been a better businessman than a chef. Um, and what's made me a better businessman is admitting that I'm not a great businessman. Yeah. And and um, admitting and, that you know nothing is one of the best traits. To have. Yeah. But then also being fortunate enough to have some amazing friends. I've got amazing friends, and yeah. I don't call them my network. Or they're, they're my friends, and they really care for me. And they are all what I don't have. They are the educated people. They are the people running multi-billion-dollar funds and you know international events and. Um, are very well respected and have a lot more life experience than me. And I'm never too shy to ask for help, um, even just for a coffee and just to talk to them. It's, I feel like I leave there, not just with a great conversation as a mate, but I feel enriched, you know, like I felt like I've learned something. Mm. Um, whether it's something personal or professional, whatever, you know, brilliant friends. Um, and none of them push me to, you know, grow my ego. You know, I, I feel like I'm lucky to be around them. It's not the other way around. They're not fueling me, so it's it's nice. <laughs> you your creative process we spoke about before at the beginning, the moleskin. Um, I've read that you're you're definitely one to buy a shitload of cookbooks and then never read them. Yeah. <laughs> so I was curious as to how, what does your creative process look like, and how do you get ahead of having to just keep your finger on the pulse? Okay, creative process is Wednesday, so it's today. Yep. Yep. Four uh, thirty, we have a, a chefs meeting every Wednesday. Four thirty. Okay. Um, and it's all chefs, so all, all of our head chefs: head chef from Maha, head chef from Maha East, Maha Bar. Uh, my ops manager Nick, who you know, um, is my partner now. Yeah. Um, Love Nick. Great yeah, guy. A, yeah, great guy. I mean, he's all right for an Iranian. <laughs> um, but we meet, we meet at Maha in the signet room in our little private room, and we talk about. The menus, purely menus, you know, not anything else. Okay, what's what's working? You know, yeah, these are great, great dishes. We look at the menu, these are great dishes. Um, what's not working? You know, what don't we like? You know, what's, uh, you know, this dish isn't so great. Okay, what do we need? What, what do we need to balance out the menu? We probably need like a little light salad dish there. Um, what produce is coming? Because then they come with produce. I always tell them come armed. You know, yeah. they come with what because they've got the relationships with the growers and the suppliers. Not me anymore. Yeah. You know, I used to have that relationship. Now it's their relationship. So they come and they bring this box. They go, oh, we can get these beautiful things. These are around for the next six weeks. You know, I can get it. And also think about money too. I can get a great deal on this. Yeah. Okay, great. All right, that's that's a brilliant product. How can we now spread that across the group to try to make some revenue? Because as you said, yeah. cost of goods is going through the roof. So if we can get a deal on something. We, we really look at that and go, yeah. okay, well, our butcher said that if we buy a pallet of this, a thousand kilos, he'll give it to us at next to nothing. Great. Between the group, we can move that, that, that ton. Let's make it happen. And then we start talk. then we go through this whole process. It's really exciting. We go through this whole process about what we want to cook and what's it going to taste like. And I let the guys kind of do it. Yeah. And I just sit there and just jab it every now and then. It's like a meeting of the minds. Right? Yeah, and like they all talk, and we and I know where to go for strengths and weaknesses. Like I've got all different chefs have got different strengths. You know, Federico's really good with technique, and um, Simon's really good at that rustic type of you know flavoursome food, and Dan's really good at sort of bringing it together. And then my role is I'm 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 the editor. My my role is to make sure it still has Maha DNA, and that's the hardest thing. 
because because yeah. they're all got different experiences and we cook unrestricted middle eastern food i mean we don't cook fucking classic middle eastern food it's, it's loosely middle eastern yeah but to weave that middle eastern you know dna through it is the bit that i have to do and i and I, it's the last question i asked them so we come up with these great three or four dishes and i'm like okay yeah fuck, great that's going to be awesome we're going to need the right bowl for that one yeah, do you understand that? And then I'll say, yeah, but that, I want it really crispy. Do you get it? Yeah, and they're like, yeah, really crispy. So it's not crispy by the time, and then we talk about the process. By the time you put the sauce on it, it's not going to sit right. You know, so then they go, okay. And then they just write the notes down. And then I'll ask them at the end, I go, so what makes it Middle Eastern? Because these dishes, none of them Middle Eastern. Okay, so what makes it Middle Eastern? I'll go, ah, oh, the yogurt, the yogurt. <laughs> I'm like, no, nah, that's fucking bullshit. So what makes this Middle Eastern? What makes it our Middle Eastern? Yeah. And then I go, okay, well, Oh, no, nothing. Okay, well, we have to scrap it. Let's just talk about how we weave that through it. Mm. So if you're using this spice instead of that, and, you know, there's this great dish, Middle Eastern dish, that's kind of similar to that, maybe if we put a bit more of that in there, we could actually start to draw the, you know, the heritage, you know, the links. Mm. And then we end up with the food. And then, you know, obviously there's heaps of stuff going on. You know, we talk about what are the functions coming up, do we need a bespoke menu for those? Yeah, because catering is a bit... That was one thing that I feel like you strategically did really well is uh, I, I remember when I did a few shifts at Maha, someone spoke about Peter Rowland back then mm-hmm. um, or your relationship with Peter Rowland. And you sort of... It's like you you learned so much about the business from that time and you were able to integrate that into your own business yeah. now. I mean, major events are a big part of our business now. Yeah. Uh, major events, corporate events, private events, catering... That's actually um, one thing you've done better than most other celebrity chefs, I think. Because your name, celebrity chef. <laughs> Pardon. I hate that celebrity <laughs> chef thing. It's fucking. Let, let's call it uh, restaurateurs. Yeah, I yeah. feel like there, your name has been synonymous with a few events around the year. Well, you want to be in the biggest market, all right? So the biggest markets where the most people are. Yeah. Yeah, and you think about the major events. You can have a little restaurant and do two hundred people, or I can go to the Australian Open and do one point two million people. <laughs> you know. Um, so I think I, the, my, my, my goal with events has always been to touch as many people as we can with a great experience so the brand grows um, and, just, and, and to work closely with the caterers because the caterers are our best friend. This is, this is interesting because last night I was obviously paying attention to what's happened to George and one of the recommended videos I had was when Jamie Oliver's uh, restaurant group collapsed. Mm-hmm. And the CEO at the time spoke about how the work that he would do marketing-wise would never actually translate to bums on seats. Mm. Whereas something like this actually translates to bums on seats. 100%. And I get there and speak. Like if I, so when we do, is about Peter Rowland. Peter was a great mentor of mine, or is a great mentor of mine. Um, say I, I do every year, I'm blessed to do the committee room for the VRC, okay, for Derby Day. Um, Mandy Elliott's the CEO of the, uh, the, 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 the CEO of the VRC and... Mm-hmm. Um, big day locally for our international listeners. Yeah, huge day. day. And the committee room is the, the room. Yeah. You know, it's the room, invite only, tucks, tails, top hat, uh, politicians, heads of state. It's the, it's the room, invite only. Um, and for... And, and historically, quite... Um, White, <laughs> um, so, French, English food. Yeah, um, and even the, pe- the people in the room. So for a, a guy of Maltese descent cooking Middle Eastern food to be in the committee room um, speaking, you know, because I get a chance to speak to the room, um, is a huge honour, but also it breaks down so many barriers. 
Um, and Amanda is so lovely how she introduces me and, you know, um, as a friend of the VRC and as a friend of the committee room. So people automatically have that connection with you. And then I really make a point of going around once the dinner's out and just speaking to tables. Because I've built relationships over these. I know one person on every table. You know, hey, how you going? Good to see you. And, they, and you talk to them and they introduce you to the rest of the table. Uh, you know, Prince, whatever. I know you're only in town for a little bit, but Shane's restaurant is, you know, and then suddenly you build this. And I leave there with like 100 bookings. Yeah. Like I literally do. They'll say, oh, tonight we really haven't got a, no problem, leave with me. Write down your details. And, I, and I'm on to Rebecca. And I bang back, get these bookings in. <laughs> and like literally leave there with bookings, which is great. Yeah. And then I make sure I leave the races and go back to the restaurant. So when they get there, they see me again, you know, and that's where you start to really make that booking a relationship because then they see you, you're welcome, nice to see you, oh, how'd you get here so quick? Yeah. And, you get, and then you, you're there for their experience and then you become their go-to. This is like how back in 2014 you did this interview and you said that you get randomised numbers yeah, yeah. and you call people. It's very important. Yeah. yeah it was very, I like then, that. Yeah, back then it was, it was very important. It's probably still important now. Um, and, I, and I haven't done it for a while because we kind of moved with technology and then now started sending people an automated email at the end of their booking asking the same type of things that I would ask. And I, in my, my mind, it was like, okay, now I get to speak to everyone instead of three or four people. Um, but it's never the same as speaking to someone on the phone. But what we do do now is with all that, because you can ask people, you can send them an email and say, tell us what you think. But what do you do with that data? If you're not fucking doing anything with that data, it's yeah. just wasting everybody's time. Yeah. Um, so we analyze the data. Um, every week the guys will say to me, positive and negative. And all the positive stuff's great and we don't really reply to it. But the negative stuff, especially if something's real, like some people just like to fucking whinge. Yeah. If something's real. Um, you can tell when something's yeah, real. Yeah, we'll, we'll get it, they'll get a letter back from me. Yeah. Not an email, a letter back. You know, so we write a lovely letter, Maha, you know, gold leafed, you know, uh, letterhead, you know, with a, with with from from me, I write the letter, um, sign it. If we need to offer any kind of you know compensation, whether it's come back as my guest or whatever it is, we do that. Or if it's just an acknowledgement, it's something. Mm. You know, nobody does that. I mean, that's and that's and that's one thing people forget in our industry is that we work in the hospitality industry. Yeah, service. The key thing is be hospitable. Yeah. That's it. Get that right, everything else is fucking easy. You know, they're not, a lot of restaurateurs and chefs think that we're fucking God's gift to the fucking world. That people, people should be lucky to get a booking in our restaurant. Fucking fool yourself. Mm. That's why all these monkeys are closing. You know, fooling yourself. We're the lucky ones that people desire, want to come and eat with us because there's thousands of restaurants in this town. Yeah. Brilliant restaurants. You know, and they want to come and spend their hard-earned money with us. The least I can do is acknowledge if there was an issue. Yeah, I've, I've not heard of that in the industry for a while. Like I know that you, you get, you got these teams and they'll, they'll listen to what people give in terms of feedback, but I've not heard of the owner doing stuff like that. I think it's really important. Yeah. Um, and that's, I've really tried, to, that's where Maha has supposed been that influence as well. I've always really tried to remain grounded. You know, that I'm not bigger or better or, you know, uncontactable or, you know, I'm here, yeah? I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm doing this. So. I know that the industry has changed a lot. We, you've spoken in the past about all the different mediums. Uber Eats was a big change in the industry. Uh, you've got a lot more production kitchens that just service uh, those, or just Uber Eats now, right? We had. You had? Yeah, not anymore. Not anymore. Yeah. Um, 
You've mentioned the past about how the pinnacle of a restaurateur for you is is sort of Nobu in a way, but I know that Petros said that you would never want to sort of fantasize or idealize too much about no. other people. No, I don't. You ask me who's who in the zoo and I don't know. Mm. You know, I really don't know. I don't know globally. I don't really even know locally. I've kind of got my mates. You know, I think locally, you know, a restaurateur that I admire is Andrew McConnell. I think he's humble, brilliant food, he's done great stuff. Um, I like he's got his very, very unique brand. You know when you're at, at one of Andrew's venues. Um, but globally, I think, you know, what Nobu's done, you know, he's taken that brand all around the world. Um, does it fucking knock the socks off people? I, I don't know. I mean, when I ate there, uh, it's nice, <laughs> you know, but I go back. Is, it, is, is that what you want? Is like, do you daydream, what do you daydream about? What do you? I'd love to take the Maha brand abroad. Yeah. I think we offer a very unique, and maybe it's because I'm ignorant. Maybe I don't know what else is out there. But I think what we provide is very unique. Um, I think it's very approachable. I think it'd be very well received globally. I think it'd be very well received in Arabic countries, in the UAE. I think it'd be very well received in London. I think it'd be very well received in, in the States. Mm. Um, so I'd like that opportunity. And I think I'm not gonna do that as a standalone owner operator. Um, I'm not gonna do that. Mm. You know, I, might, I may do it in the States, but I don't know, I, I, I want to do it with, a, with partners. Yeah. I want to do it with, as a licensing deal or okay. as a, with, a, with a, a restaurant group or a hotel chain where we start to bring those signature restaurants back in hotels where you can have, you know, Maha at the Savoy. Yeah. And, you know, and it's their restaurant and we go and train them and we go, and then I just spend my life like one of these speakers on the speaking circuit going around from restaurant to restaurant around the globe with my small posse with my little SAS of chefs and we go in and retrain the chefs update the menus you know and just do that I'd be very happy to do that how is how has Nobu done it like how is no like think of Ramsey think of all these big like Heston others like I, I can't think of anyone but Nobu who's really succeeded internationally in maintaining that level of success I think he's created a great brand in regards to the, the, the product because it's not really Japanese. It's kind of got this Peruvian little layer over it, but it's bloody tasty. And he was, in, he was, a, and, and he was a pioneer too. He was one of the earliest ones doing that kind of stuff. And it's pretty consistent. But, but does, he, does he license those or does he own them all? Or what, what's the I'd deal? Taking a stab, I don't think he owns many of them. I think that he'd be licensing. Yeah, because there's so many. Well, right? the Crown one is... Like he wouldn't be owning them in the in, in like I went to the one in Vegas. There's no way he owns that. It's a licensing deal. You know, the one at Crown Crown owns. You know, um, the one in Malibu that I went to. I don't know because it's a standalone. Most of the ones I've been to have been in complexes. Um, okay. Um, so if they're in a complex, it's probably. I'd assume license. it's a licensing or a JV, but um, no, I, I I do admire what he's done. I think it's great, and it, it creates this you've got security in that brand. You know when you go to a Nobu, what to expect. And that's why we've used Maha as the parent brand and then taking derivatives off that to do Maha Bar, Maha, Maha East, because establishing a new brand's hard work. Yeah, I think that's, that's a smart move, keeping the same brand name. Well, because people, they know it. Like already when people, we've already got bookings for the bar, we don't even open it for another couple of weeks. People don't have to worry. They know what the DNA is. It's when you buy a Mercedes, you know you're buying a Mercedes. Mm. You don't have to worry. If it's a Mercedes A-Class, B, C, AMG, whatever the hell it is, you're buying a Mercedes. So you've got that level of security that you know what you're getting. So why would I go and start a 
Toyota brand when I've already got a Mercedes. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? That, is, that, is, that, that is an interesting point. I feel like that was one of the things at the press club when I was there that it, that it missed. There was some, in some venues that felt a bit disjointed to what the press club was. Yeah, and I mean, that's where my equity is. You know, the equity is in Maha. Yeah. Um, it was a, it was a, it was a uh, the experience of doing Biggie Smalls really sort of showed me that you know about about yeah. what, what brand equity means and how hard we had to work to get that brand out there and it still didn't work. So, if you had if you had renamed it, what would it have been Maha Kebabs? No, I wouldn't <laughs> have done it. I wouldn't have done it. That's rats and mice. Yeah. That, that in that it's industry, too, it's too hard. No, it, it it would have it was okay before the you know the the before the, Uber Eats. Well, yeah, before Uber Eats came in and just changed the game, totally changed the game. They changed the market, mm. you know. So, and I'm not hating on Uber Eats. I mean, I think they it's a necessary evil. You know, people need it, they want it, the consumers. It's not going anywhere, but it has disrupted an industry, which is what it was set out to do. But there's no resolution. Like at the moment, it's disrupted, and, no, and there's no fix. Nobody's winning. Mm. From what they tell me, they're not making any money, which I don't know. But the restaurants definitely aren't making money. The consumer is getting a subpar product, yeah. but they're getting it anyway. And all they're getting is burgers and fucking noodles anyway. Yeah. So they're not getting any restaurant food, which was what Uber was their mandate to set out and bring restaurant quality food to home. Yeah. That that had that failed, fall on its ass pretty quick. Um, it is it is weird, isn't it? Like I, I remember when we had these. Uh, God, there was like some other online. Was it Order Now? No. Yeah, I know. There's been Deliveroo. There's Order Mate or something. Order before before that, and you used to be able to get like we ordered something the other night from our favourite Thai place, and I was like, I, I'd already picked out the prawns because I know how many prawns comes in this <laughs> this pad Thai, and I'm eating my prawns, and Lauren's like, Where's the prawns? And I'm like, What do you mean? Like, there's six in total for this dish, three each, and she's like, No, I think there's that's it. Oh wow! I, I'd already taken three and I'd already Come eaten back. them, and she was fucking so pissed. Yeah. But that's that's when you talk about the subpar product. That's that's what has to happen because of those commissions that they take. Well, you know the problem is, I think that um, so we established Biggie Smalls on a conventional, you know, traditional business model: Main Street, rent, cost of goods, hundred percent of the sale, and we did our business plan on that, mm. and it was a profitable business model in the first few months. But then Uber Eats come on about four or five months after we opened, and it was great. Because suddenly we had, say it's 30 grand a week in store that we were doing. And we were doing well, and the business pumping, and everything's, everything's great. And then suddenly Uber comes on, and they plug in, and, cons- and they punch the PR and, and marketing. And you're doing 30 in store, plus another 10 or 12 on Uber. And the commissions were a lot lower in the beginning if you came on early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're going, wow, this is amazing. I'm making my budgeted amount in store. Plus, I'm making 10 or 12. Yeah, I'm losing a slither, but it's all cream. Yeah. It's fucking amazing. And then what happens is the market shifts. So the consumer changes. So the consumer now starts to get used to this new market where they can jump on an app and not just have to walk down a main street and maybe have five or six choices. They can now go on an app and have hundreds of choices. Mm. Hundreds of choices. But so, it makes them lazier as well. well they're not coming down to the store. Well, yeah, so, so they suddenly don't come to the store anymore. So they can just sit it on the home. They've got the brand loyalty isn't really there anymore. They're, they're enticed by all these other things. And also the Uber algorithm starts to push other businesses. So suddenly it's in front of them. They don't have to look for your... Like they have to actually look for your brand. Mm. So it's not suddenly oh, I'm going to Biggie Smalls. They can, 
you know, and then maybe there's two or three other shops and they don't even look at them. Now they've got this app and it's just like, whoa. So then your patronage in the store shrinks, it's no longer 30 grand, now it's maybe 20 grand. And maybe- You still got the overhead. You still got the overhead, but now maybe instead of getting 10 or 12 on Uber, you're getting eight. And then suddenly the 20 goes to 15 and this eight turns to six, then you're fucked. Yeah. So, and that's where we were starting to get. And we went, okay, Biggie Smalls isn't a dead brand. It's got such great brand equity because we put so much effort into it and everybody knows it. Where does it win? It, it wins on the truck. We've got a food truck, it wins on major events. You put that brand amongst other brands, dominates. So you, you've created that, that high street again. Yeah, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. So now you've got a, a dominant brand amongst other brands and it chews it up. Mm. You know, so you're not worrying about this new marketplace, you've gone back to a traditional marketplace uh, and, and we're back to business. You're not so much a restaurateur, but you're a brand guy. Nah. I know, <laughs> I, like you, you get it, you yeah, seem to yeah. get it. Like coming from Adland, you get the value and the margin that comes from developing a brand. That's why you love Mercedes. Uh, I love all the brands we work with, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I've, I've got a rule with brands, with brands that I stand by. Um, I have to be a consumer or a fan first. If I'm not, I'm not signing. Hundred mm. percent. Like if I'm not a consumer or a or a fan, or a, you know, I, I'm 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 not going near it um, because I felt if I had a if, if it was something I wanted, I'd, I'd already be getting it. I'd already be buying it, or I dreamed of getting it. Um, I became a Mercedes friend of the brand through an acquisition of a Mercedes. So I bought one for my wife um, at, here at Melbourne. Uh, Mercedes Melbourne and then I slowly like I just started doing some TV and one of the brand guys there recognized me doing the marketing guy said oh great what have you bought and I told him and then I saw as I've always said just give me it just open the door then have to open it fully just crack it and I'll kick that fucker open and I'll run in and get it <laughs> so I saw that as an opening yeah and he, said, he knows who I am great there's an interest fuck this is Mercedes I love Mercedes and I said well why don't we start doing some work together? I'm just across the road. Do you do any catering? They're like, yeah, we host these events. Great. So I started doing maha little menus in their di in their showroom and all this stuff. Then I built, and then I said to the guys, hey, I actually, because that was the first new car, well, the only new car I ever bought, and it was for my wife. Um, and I said, oh, I was driving an old piece of shit Ford Festiva with a blue door, and I used to have to push the window up. <laughs> and I said, uh, I've saved a bit of money, I, I wanna buy a car for me. And they suggested, well, how, instead of buying it, maybe we can do like a ambassador role. Wow. We'll give you a car to drive and you can do more of these things for us. And I went, oh, fuck, amazing. So I did that and then I was with a friend of a brand locally for like four years, three or three, three years. And then I had an opportunity to move into a friend of the brand nationally at an AMG level. Oh. And now I've got a relationship with the brand, like a, a proper relationship with the brand. That's nice. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great partnership. I feel like if if I ever came home one day with something like that and told my dad, like he'd cry with happiness because yeah, he's a massive mistake. Well, actually, he's moved away to Audi at the moment because he was disappointed with their. Uh, he he had a C forty three, two thousand three mm -hmm. or four model for, for for years, and he got very disappointed with what they were doing with the mechanics of the car or something like his oh, okay. traditional, yep. you know. In, in what he likes to see in the motor, but now he's like he's really it's eyeing off. Back. He's really eyeing off. Um, a former guest of our Jerry Jerry Sackers has bought a CL sixty three or C sixty three, the AMG. 
SC63, yeah. yeah. Great car. Fucking amazing car. Yeah, brilliant car. Tell him I know someone. I can, I can uh, introduce <laughs> him to someone there. We can you get know a guy deal. who knows a guy. We'll, we'll get, make sure he gets the we'll sure he gets the right the car. Um, all right, I'm going to jump into rapid fire questions. But before we do that, the one thing I want to ask you about TV, because I feel like this is, you know, you spoke before about the opportunity it gave you with the, the car. You've done a lot of TV, whether it's Spice Journey for three seasons, stints on MasterChef, uh, Shane Deli's Recipe for Life. Yeah, quite quite liked looking back on uh, on YouTube, but now, of course, Postcards is the mainstay. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the, the highs and lows of TV, and what do you hate people asking you about TV? Oh, okay. Um, the highs of TV, for me personally, I learned how to be a chef from Spice Journey. Mm. Like, I was always, I was, I mean, I was good cook and everything before, but after coming back from Spice Journey, I, I really started to learn what food really means to people. Mm. You know, I went to go to, into villages and speak to people and none of them are foodies. This is fucking, that's a first world thing. You know, these are just people who eat and love food. Um, and I really started to understand, wow, this is actually bigger than me and the stuff I'm doing. And I, and I started to cook a lot better. Um, I mean, the positives, uh, it's given my children um, an unbelievable opportunity, opportunities that were far beyond anything I could dream of. Mm. You know, um, f- both academically, with opening of doors, um, experientially, you know, like I get, they get to see things and do things that, you know, I, I rapped to do, you know. Um, the negatives are, if you're, if you're weak, and we're all weak, depends on the level of, if, if you're weak like me, which you know, I can be very weak at times, the, all the bullshit around having a public profile mm. can start to fade the lines between real and not real. And um, that's where you need your people. And that's where my friends and my wife and everyone start to keep me in check and start to you know, just really say, that's not real, this is real. Um, That's interesting. Because you start to get hungry for the things that are fueling your ego as opposed to the things that fuel your heart. Mm. Um, so that's a negative. I mean, the other stuff I, you know, I'm not a wanker. I, people come up and say g'day. Oh, I'm happy to say g'day. Sometimes, I mean, my heart says to me, don't be so fucking rude. Sometimes I, if I'm eating a fucking bowl of noodle soup and I've got shit all over my face, I don't want to have a chat. <laughs> you know, like, I, don't want, I don't want to talk to my friend, let alone someone that... Because, I mean, the person that comes up is genuinely... I never get haters. Like, I don't get people coming up and giving me a hard time. It's always people that are really happy. And, and I, I, I want to be happy. Like, I want to say, hey, yeah, nice to meet you. It's flattering. No one ever used to want to say hello to me. I was that fat wog from St Albans. I mean, so it's nice when people want to come and say hello now. So, I mean, it, it is nice. And uh, the, uh, I suppose the... The, the best thing for me, it's given me opportunities to do things that I'm passionate about with brands and people that I love um, because I would have never had any of these opportunities. And I, I know it, I fool myself. I'd never be a Mercedes friend of the brand. I'd never be a Bulldogs ambassador, a Melbourne City ambassador, a Melbourne Storm ambassador, you know, ambassador of Host Plus. No way. If I was just a chef, no way. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not that good of a chef. Yeah. So I'm, I'm 100%, you know, comfortable with saying it's been because I've had opportunities on TV. Mm. All right. We're going to get into our rapid fire questions. Shoot. What does your morning routine look like? Uh, it's gym, then it's food, then it's work. How's the um, 
the meal prepping. One of our guests wanted to know how your meal prepping is going. I saw your Tupperware containers. On my yeah, yeah, real good, really good. It's um, it's a challenge, um, but I'm enjoying it, and I'm looking, and I'm actually enjoying seeing physical and uh, changes within my body. So nice. Yeah, it's fun. Evening routine. What does that look like? Depends on the day. Every day, every one of my days is different. There is never a day that's the same. Um, today, I think my evening will be. I'll get home about ten. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll sit on the couch for a bit and unwind, and then I'll be out cold. So that'll be it. What are you watching typically when you're on the couch? I just finished watching that Don't Fuck With Cats thing. Oh, dude. How fucked is that? Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, you need to watch something a bit more lighthearted now. Um, <laughs> you know, I like watching um, the Hip Hop Evolution on, okay. on Netflix. That's yeah. great. I'm a big hip hop fan. Yeah. So for me, that's right up my alley. It talks about the history and the people and all the little nuances, which has been really cool. Um, and I'm just hanging out for the footy. Yeah, you know, I'm, I, I'm just hanging out for the footy now. Yeah, like, bring it on. I gotta say, I, as Ace, because I I listened to Two Guys One Cup. Well, actually, yeah, I think yeah, they yeah, renamed yeah. it to Two Guys Two Cups. Yeah. Will is actually coming in next Friday, so He's I can have gun. a good chat about this. But um, as a St Kilda supporter, I actually was at the point of tears when the Bulldogs won yeah. it, in 2017, wasn't 16. it? 16. 16. I always get mixed look, up with the 16. two. Because um, <laughs> it made me believe that we could do it. Yeah, yeah, you can. Won't be the next few years. The Bulldogs are going to do pretty well. But, um, no, you can. They've got, they've got a good coach and the group's good. We pinched the cup. We pinched the uh, yeah, Bruce. Yeah, you p- pinched Brucey. I was very sad about he's that. He's a good boy, but, yeah, no, it's, it was an emotional time for everyone. A very significant time in my life. Um, all right, the fridge. What's in the fridge at home? At the moment, it's full of meal prep. Okay. Um, full of meal prep um, and, and some stuff for the kids and a bucket load of water. The kids mainly eat what you guys eat, or is there a variation there? Uh, no, they're not eating the meal prep stuff. Yeah. Although they probably could, some of them. Um, but no, Maha cooks for the kids. Okay. Yeah. Um, best purchase under $200? Ooh. Uh, um, best purchase under $200? Jeez. Uh, would have been a... Um, recently. Oh, I, I was lucky enough to... I bought a pair of... Uh, MX 90s they were like 160 bucks they were great yeah. <laughs> where did you get that? Uh, I, 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 you fr- can't say I, I, I bought them from a friend <laughs> <laughs> oh shit alright last question for you if you could have a billboard anywhere in Melbourne where would it be and what would it say? Um, oh wow <laughs> well the b- best billboard spot in Melbourne is on top of the Young and Jacksons yeah you know that's, that's the spot that, uh, people go with that Punt Road under the bridge or Melbourne Airport? Yeah, Melbourne Airport's a good one. Yeah. Melbourne Airport could be a good one. You could have some fun with it. Yeah. You know? Um, <laughs> what would it say? There's been some pretty risky ads on that one recently. Which one's that, the Melbourne Airport Melbourne one? Melbourne Airport one, yeah. You it was that? a Bonds ad where um, it was just like underwear that just said boobs and people got very upset about it. Oh, really? Yeah. Hard enough. Well, you know, I mean, what would it say? I mean... I don't know. There's a million million things I could put on there. Um, what would it say? Oh fuck! I get myself in trouble. <laughs> I can get myself in trouble because I'm not the most politically correct person. And um, and my my personal views, um, I know would would only would be at my business detriment. Yeah. So I'm, I'm always very reluctant to share them. But um, what would it say on the on? Oh fuck! You'd want to advertise the brands, wouldn't you? <laughs> you'd want to start getting some money back in the brands. Um, a lot of people go with um, brand related stuff. Yeah, I mean brand related stuff because 
Have you ever thought about what a Maha billboard would look like? Mm. You know, we've got, we did, we did this, um, we have, we've got this slogan that we use for our events and it's, it says, imagined by you, managed by us. Um, which is probably a slogan more for a catering company or an airline or I don't know what mm. it, but I mean we use it for our events it's you know and it's really like I mean it's black and gold and sort of metallic colors and looks really lovely and it just says you know Mahar events imagined by you managed by us which I've always thought was really nice um, that's a good one you could almost build like a mirage yeah element instead of the creative but but I'm not a marketer I mean I've never I mean I, I like it but I'm not a I don't know. I really don't know. Um, <laughs> um, maybe it says, judgment day is coming. Be scared. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I grew up in a Catholic environment, a Catholic home. You know, everyone, we went to church every week and my kids go to Catholic school. And, you know, whether I believe everything in the Bible, I mean, I don't. I believe the stories and the learnings and the teachings. I understand, I understand why those stories are there and I understand... Um, why that they were needed to keep society from hemorrhaging. Mm. And I look at us now and we're hemorrhaging mm. everywhere, everywhere. The world's turning to shit. <laughs> and do Corona, I think... Coronavirus is here. No, nah, but every, not even the virus. I mean, everything, mm. everything, everything's turning to absolute shit. And we're just, we're, 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 we're just happy to accept, it's not normality, it's almost mediocrity. Um, and I look at what's, I look at the, the, the importance of what those learnings were for me as a kid, not so much even as a Catholic, but just me as a kid. They meant a lot because they kept me on the straight and narrow and society moved on and things. I, 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 I think that those, we need boundaries in life. Mm. And at the moment, the boundaries are so wide. It's just, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm not nervous for the world my children are going to grow up mm. in. I don't think social media helps with it. A hundred percent. I mean, and, and I, every time I see myself at home and I finish a day at work and I sit on the couch and the screen's on and I pick up my phone and start looking at it, I hate myself. Yeah. Like I fucking hate myself because I'm like, what am I doing? Like my wife's sitting right near me. The kids are in bed. She's doing the same thing. And I'm like, this is fucked. It's a terrible. This terrible is terrible. Yeah. We're not even talking. We're not even watching the TV together and talking about what we're watching. We've, we've got one screen on there, one screen on there, one screen on there, and there's no communication <laughs> apart with people that we don't even fucking know. You're just like this. Yeah, it's just, it's shit else. I yeah, hate it. I, I've, I've, uh, we've started banning phone use in certain situations. Yeah, I've, I've actually asked Maha too, well, I don't know if she's doing it, is that until the kids go to bed, stay off your phone mm. because the kids are only home for a few hours after work you know, after school, they, they come home from school, they're either straight into a sport or whatever, and really, they're in bed by 7.30, our kids, they're in bed early. Mm. So, it's not a big sacrifice. You know, feed them, spend some time, talk to them, educate them, help them do their homework, get off the phone. Um, I don't know if she's doing it, because Jada, or my daughter, always tells me that mum's always on the phone, but <laughs> get off the phone. <laughs> He's watching. Get off the phone. <laughs> um, Shane, thanks for coming in. Where can people find you? on the interwebs oh um, I'm active on Instagram it's uh, at Shane Delia. just not after 7.30 well oh, I try not to but um, but I'm, addic I'm addicted like everybody um, and just jump on our website you know deliagroup.com.au mm. thanks for coming in thanks for having me 
thanks for listening in to this episode. If you like it, do leave us a written review on your podcast app as it helps us continue going on a weekly basis and we do love reading those reviews as well. Uh, If you want the show notes, you can find that below or with our previous guest at neural.com slash podcast. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com slash podcast. To watch the full video, search Uncommon Show on YouTube and to keep up to date with behind the scenes and clips for the show, you can find us at Uncommon underscore show on Instagram. Until next time, guys, thank you so much for listening.